0: Today we've got a pretty wide-ranging conversation with Yahoo News reporter John Ward. Eventually we get around to my initial goal of talking about conspiracy theories and evangelical subculture, but along the way we also talk about vaccines and the anti-vax movement, Confederate monuments, voter suppression, free speech, partisan media, public discourse, political psychology, his charismatic Protestant upbringing, and more. John is one of my favorite journalists working today. His podcast, The Long Game, has focused on the role of institutions in our public life. And recently, he started focusing more on conspiracy theories and free speech. So let's get into it with John Ward. John, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start off with the difference between what you're working on now and what you started working on when you initially launched The Long Game podcast. I don't think there completely different but there's a shift and I think there'll be something interesting in that. So when you started it, you're kind of analyzing the 2016 election, what had happened, how come everybody thought, you know, quote the party decides, but it didn't decide. Trump like stole this nomination from underneath the elites. And what's going on with information and Facebook and what are people believing and you you focused on institutions. That was what you said the podcast was about. It's a fantastic podcast. You had some incredible conversations around that. And recently, sort of separate from the George Floyd stuff, which has kind of, I think for all journalists probably, been a little bit of a vacuum sucking up coverage for good reason. But before that, and now you're resuming it, you've been focusing on conspiracies. And conspiracies are related to institutions insofar as they tend to be very critical and wary of institutional power but why specifically that recent shift in the particular focus that you're working on
1: man it's a lot to chew on right out of the gate i mean i i feel like uh, i have first of all i have not sat down even though you sent me a bunch of things to think about you know i haven't sat down and thought about the podcast as a tree you know like the trunk would be what you talked about the focus on political parties and institutions and i think maybe even more fundamentally, how do we solve problems in an age of polarization and fracturing and and hyper individualism? So how do we solve problems? How do we solve the problem of collective action being a challenge? How do we come together with other people to do things to address challenges? So that was sort of the trunk of the tree. And then I think from that trunk, which included a kind of a zeroing in on political parties as the best illustration of that, In 2016, you know, there have been other sort of branches that have gone out from there. And one of them has been actually voting rights. I'm really excited actually to talk to a guy named Rick Hassan, who's one of the experts on this topic. It's really actually hard to find fair minded people on the issue of voting rights, voter suppression, and voter ID. But voting rights is sort of the the down-the-middle term, and then voter suppression is the term that people on the left use, and then voter ID is the term that people on the right use. But voting rights is a fundamental part of a functioning democracy. And then I think the stuff about misinformation and disinformation has been there all along, percolating, but it really kind of became something that I thought was more important than ever because of uh, COVID-19 and i just saw you know a lot of people who had come from the anti-vaccine world starting to really push a lot of bad information about what was happening in march and april i mean all along they've generally just been sort of skeptical of uh health experts and politicians and journalists and the sort of accepted narrative whether it's reopening or masks or hydro chloroquine, if that's how you say it all along they've been skeptical and to be fair to some degree the the experts have certainly helped them you know the guidance from public health experts on masks instead of being upfront early on and saying they might help you but we need to preserve them for <clears throat> health professionals they said don't wear them they don't do anything and that was dishonest and that was yeah. that was super unhelpful and it's just things like that that really do a lot of damage. Yeah. So So, sometimes
0: institutions hurt their own credibility by not having a cohesive
1: message. It's not just a lack of cohesive messaging. In this case, it's dishonesty. Yeah. And I think one of the things I've really come to appreciate in thinking about institutions is just how often institutions have failed, not just in the last 5, 10, 20 years, but certainly for the last several decades you can list the the big ones off the top of your head starting with watergate in vietnam probably and then you could probably count 911 in that because of the intelligence community's failures along with maybe journalism's failures to be skeptical enough of the government's claims about wmd and then you know you around that time you have the catholic church sex abuse scandal the 2008 economic crisis you had experts over and over saying everything was fine and then The elites bail themselves out. And then, you know, the last 10 years are kind of a blur, honestly, but I don't have my recitation of institutional failures down over the last 10 years, but I know that there are a number of cases where you could kind of add to that list. So, yes, institutions fail. And I think you also have to look at the conversation around uh, systemic racism in this context as well, because one of the things I'm personally concerned about as well right now is free speech, free thought. I do think there's a there's a little bit of fundamentalism out there. I don't know if that's bad faith actors or people who are new converts to the issue of systemic racism, but there's a lack of tolerance for people to ask questions on these issues and to speak freely on these issues. So that's also, I think, of concern to me.
0: Yeah. So, okay, there's a lot in there, where I'm trying to train this conversation is eventually getting to the overlap of conspiracy theories and evangelical subculture. Let's start with anti-vaxxers because you kind of started there. You recently interviewed Francis Collins. He is, uh, I believe he's the director of the National Institutes of Health. Is that right? Correct. And he is also a co-founder of the BioLogos organization. He's a Christian, atheistic evolutionist, and he oversaw the human genome mapping project. He is a very big deal in his world and he is concerned about anti-vaccine, but he also knows evangelical subculture because that's basically the world he comes from and more or less lives in. I mean, BioLogos specifically aims their messaging at evangelical Americans. So let's start there. You don't need to make all these connections for me between conspiracy theories and the evangelical culture, but Francis Collins seems like a good place to start. How would you distill sort of his concerns right now?
1: I think it's important to point out that Collins is a convert. He was an atheist growing up, so he didn't grow up and have his formative years in evangelical subculture. That's, That's right. just an interesting detail, but I <laughs> think those kinds of things are important.
0: Yeah, for sure, yeah.
1: And I think Collins is concerned about misinformation because he's a public health expert and uh, you know, he realizes that if there's no trust in experts, then let's say you get a vaccine for COVID 19, a certain percentage of people might not take it, that might lead to more illnesses and more deaths. Same thing for measles and other illnesses that have been addressed by vaccines and largely become non issues, but now which have been cropping back up again because of anti vaccine folks. You know, I just want to say though that I was glad he said this because I think it's a valid point. You know, he said that experts have not done a good enough job of addressing the concerns of anti-vaccine people. You know, anti-vaccine attitudes was something I hadn't spent a ton of time thinking about. You know, when we had our first child, I remember we did become concerned at one point that he was getting too many vaccines at once. It never was something that was a big deal to us, uh, but we did at one point, I think, defer... A shot or a couple shots to the next appointment, something like that. It never went any further than that. You
0: talk to your parents and they recall the the vaccines that you got and you go, man, Mm -hmm. it seems like we're getting we're giving them a A lot lot more more stuff than we were given." And I turned out okay. That's a Mm -hmm. very reasonable question to ask. So we asked, for instance, that question to our doctor Mm -hmm. and she was like, that's true. But what we haven't done a very good job of explaining to people is that we actually give you a lot less For each of those vaccines now Because Mm. the technology has gotten better So we're actually putting less Stuff into the kid Per vaccine basically they've gotten More Mm. efficient But like we didn't know that and That seems like a pretty straightforward Explanation that's kind of like Oh interesting why is that not In the public consciousness
1: Yeah I, I think this is the point I'm Trying to get to here is that Experts public health experts and elites have not done a great job explaining on the front end what's going on and on the back end addressing the concerns of people who have concerns. Yeah. So I think a lot of that conversation is pretty superficial, and I think a lot of people who are vaccine-resistant or anti-vaxxers, even the term anti-vaxxers could be sort of a slur or a way of dismissing people, and there's a great piece that I can send you if you want to put it in the show notes. Yeah. But it was about autism and about how the, the medical establishment really did not handle autism well in, in the way that they addressed it. That fertilized the ground for some of the way that people f- are skeptical of the medical establishment about vaccines. Yeah, And again, it's arrogance. It's dismissing people's concerns. And so that is another example of institutional elite failure that – creates instability and leads to people getting hurt in real life
0: so it's interesting that you brought up systemic racism I'm seeing a connection here I think that you're making so a person is told through some means or other get vaccines or white privilege or what fill in the blank right there they see a message and then they have a question about it so the vaccination person would say for instance why are they getting so many vaccines? Uh, what's the deal with that? Or the, the white person who's never thought about systemic racism might say, well, how come Asian Americans uh, don't have the same problems, it seems? Now, you could respond to those questions in a number of ways. One way you can respond is to say, shut up and get the vaccine. Right. Or you can say, that's a racist question to ask, right? Right. Or, you know, you could answer with, well, good question. Actually, we do smaller amounts and technology, whatever. And, hey, good question. Actually, a big difference is that most Asian Americans were not brought here forcibly. They move here with advanced degrees in high paying jobs. You know, whatever. Like there are answers to those questions. And you can, you can point people to those answers in a kind way or you can be a dick about it basically. And one thing that I'm wondering is if this kind of fundamentalism that we see cropping up, I think we see it in both of these instances, ends up further kind of gelling the opposition against, you know, this the new left or the new elite or however you want to call them. Right. The new armchair epidemiologists that now proliferate all over Twitter. I'm wondering if you see sort of a connection there. Like, am I on to something with that?
1: Yeah, I think you are. I'm glad you brought up racism again because I didn't flesh out the point I was trying to make earlier as as much as I'd wanted to. I think the thing that's hard about systemic racism and about the nature of dialogue on it right now is that I think you have two things that have positioned people to try to shut down debate or conversation on the issue. One is that there's a lot of debate and dialogue that's in bad faith these days Trolling, for, essentially, for sure, right? For, yes, yes, trolling. And so trolling creates – bad faith argument creates a lack of trust that people are posing questions in in a legitimate spirit of inquiry.
0: I Actually, want, I'd like to go further. It's not – I think it's not just trolling. It's actually also partisan media is also arguing in bad faith all the time. Yes. A family member sent me an article that was like about – the disparity in black people killed by the police and it buried like 10 paragraphs deep the population percentages of black people relative to the number killed by police it just it basically ignored the most basic mathematical thing required to interpret the statistic that whatever 30% or 25% they're 13% of the population it just like skated, right? So that's a bad faith article right there. It's That is not coming at the issue. Now, I think you probably see a similar kinds of bad faith articles with left-leaning partisan media toward other topics, probably not systemic racism, but maybe the kind of concerns that rural Americans tend to have. Maybe gun control articles or something like that will we'll not do the, the basic statistical math to interpret certain findings. I I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm spitballing here. You might have a better example of a topic. But so it's trolling, those are individuals, right? But then it's also all these people and organizations, media organizations that make their living uh firing up their own base, activating their anger, the righteous anger impulses and not ever engaging truly with the other side of the issue.
1: Yeah, all that is true. I agree. So you have kind of two different things. You have people who are maybe running partisan media outlets who are, you know, retrofitting facts to fit their pre-existing narrative. And unfortunately, that happens not just in partisan media, but in mainstream media some of the time and on issues like race. And, you know, voter suppression is actually a really good example of an issue where it's easy to pick a side and then sort of fit your facts to that narrative and it's not always clear. That's why I was ha- I was saying I, I'm excited to talk to this guy Rick Hassan because he's calling balls and strikes on, on both sides. And there's just so little <laughs> there's so little appetite it seems for people to call call out both sides. I think the reason it seems that way is because we're too much in the world of Twitter. I actually think there's a huge amount of demand for that, but that's among regular people. So you have the sort of confirmation bias or whatever you want to you've gone deep into that with your work on height and others and then you have the trolling So I think that's that's what the first thing that orients people to shut down debate and the second is just the fact that calls for moderation, due process, deliberation understandably I think are met with you know we've if you're a person of color if you're a black person in America, these things have often been cited as ways to slow down or stop reform. Right. So I think that that is a understandable response when people maybe like me say about statues, this should be done through a deliberative process at the community level, not through, you know, ad hoc groups of people that just sort of come out of nowhere and have no process for how they're deciding this and are not really part of any community Conversation. Never mind the fact that I got that idea from a pretty left-wing politician named Tom Perriello, who ran for governor in Virginia. But I think to even go further on this, and to bring it back to the where we started in this conversation, I think I was listening to David French on on a podcast called The Fifth Column, I think it's called, um, which is a bunch of like libertarian dudes, um, and French was saying that. There was a lot of right out of the gates after George Floyd's murder. There was a lot of focus on police reform. There is still some focus on it, but it immediately kind of switched over to monuments. And in French's mind, that was a distraction. Now you can dig, agree or disagree with that. I think you know there are a lot of monuments that should be moved to museums. I also think there are a lot of monuments that should stay up. But let's let's just take French's point and accept for the theory of for the sake of argument that that monuments are a distraction from police reform. I think one explanation for the shift to monuments is what I perceive to be a very short-term perspective among a lot of younger people in our in our modern age. Police reform, first of all, is, you know, unless you're talking about abolish the police, which is not going to happen, then you're talking about reforming the police. And reforming the police very quickly gets into very granular details of yeah. debate. It's and boring that is policy complicated debate. And yeah, that's right. boring. Yes, correct. And and it takes time. But has it has potentially massive implications. Massive. And so monuments are much more black and white. They're either up or they're down. Mm, and interesting. they're very tangible as well. You see them or you don't. You touch them or you don't. And, you know, I wrote something a couple of years ago. It was after one of these sort of brawls out in Oakland in the middle of the street between Antifa and I don't know, whatever right wing group was out there. But the headline was something like, We've law we have fights in the streets because people have lost faith in political parties. People don't have don't even I don't think they even comprehend of the fact that you can work for change through a political party or through local, you know, community organizations. And I do think a lot of this comes back to this is probably oversimplified, but there's certainly some truth to it. I think it comes back to the idea that we have, as a culture, come to expect change to happen like things happen on our phones. Hmm. Uh, We want it to happen right now with a few swipes of of our thumb, essentially.
0: Okay. So this is full circle to vaccines and COVID and conspiracy theories as well, because... Some complexity conspiracies are all about black and white. They make complex things simple. So the fact of the matter, for instance, around COVID, especially back in March, let's say, was that very little was known. Right. That was the truth. We can say that definitively now. I mean, still quite little is known. Yeah. We may even get a vaccine before we fully understand the thing. Right. So which raises all other sorts of questions. Well, sure. But like, so if that's the case, but but like, we don't like that, right? So our brains are not particularly evolved to sit with. There is a very deadly disease. We do not know much about it. We don't know how many people are going to get it. We don't know if you yourself are susceptible or not. That's not really a state we can live in. That is a lot of cognitive dissonance. That is a heightened state. We need to get back to equilibrium. One way that our bodies can get back to equilibrium is to believe a conspiracy theory, basically to like short. Oh, oh, all of that is just X. It's just elites or it's just, I don't trust those people anyway. So I, I, there's this doctor from Bakersfield and he's telling me that it's much simpler than that. And so it's the one piece of evidence that can, Okay, bring me back to stasis and I can feel okay in my own body and my brain's not on fire anymore.
1: Yeah, I think COVID's been a good example of this kind of thing because there, it's just been a huge storm of uncertainty and confusion. Uh, and you've seen mistakes made among conspiracy theorists and you've seen mistakes made to try to bring certainty, not just among conspiracy theorists, but among the medical establishment at times as well. Yeah. You know, like getting back to the point about masks. Um, that was, that was a a good example of something where you had competing priorities. It's an issue of complexity and nuance, but unfortunately, you know, I think part of the problem is that our public communication, there's not a lot of room for nuance even because people maybe only read the headline or they only like, uh, you know, they, they just don't have a lot of tolerance for nuance. People are punished for saying something that, you know, sounds bad, even if it, there's more to it than that.
0: I want to connect this a little bit to evangelical subculture. This is a group that you know a few things about through your years of reporting, um, especially after the Trump election and, you know, with with a fair amount of granularity. Basically what I'd like to do is I, if I have a listener who is getting articles sent from an evangelical family member or a friend or something like that. And it's causing them some distress. They don't really know what to do about it. They don't really understand why this is happening. That's my kind of target listener for, for this part of the conversation is like, uh, and by the way, I, that applies to me. <laughs> I'm one of those people. I get those articles sent to me. So what I'd like to do is like sort of understand that better and understand where there might be some some stuff about that evangelical subculture that makes this stuff more likely. Not for everybody, of course. Not every evangelical is the same. But I do think we can draw some lines here or give people things that they could then consider, does this apply to this loved one in my life or this friend? Or does it not apply to them? So if I just start there, what comes to mind for you? First of all, I'm pretty sure I've
1: told you this, but I grew up in Sovereign Grace. Sovereign Um,
0: Grace, yeah, which is
1: like neo-reformed... It wasn't at first. It was a bunch of hippies in the 70s who were charismatic, born-again Christians in D.C. and just outside it. C.J. Mahaney was the head pastor. My dad was friends with him actually growing up. And so my dad was a a pastor early on in that church. So I was actually a pastor's kid until I was about 10 years old. I think the place I would start on this is one of the questions I posed to Terry Mattingly, who is um, the founder of GetReligion.org. Very scrupulous, thoughtful journalist. And my question to him was, as in the course of our conversation, I kind of articulated it, and it was like this. It was, are white conservative evangelicals more prone to conspiracy theories than the average person? Or do I have a concern about this because people who claim to be adherents to a faith that prioritizes truth should be doing better at pursuing truth than this?
0: Yeah, great question.
1: Yeah. I don't know... The answer to that, I think even recently, there's been a few things that that reminded me, oh, yeah, it just it's not just white evangelicals who fall for conspiracy theories. There were people on the left who were passing around uh, conspiracy theories about fireworks recently that were that were pretty laughable,
0: I think. Mm-hmm. Or all the focus on the steel dossier with Trump, the PP tape.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Russia's a good one. Yep. Exactly. Which was never
0: was, not really yep. substantiated, but like. I wanted it to be true so badly. I mean, I could feel it in myself. It's not
1: the same thing because there was, I mean, there was, there's a lot of smoke there, Yeah. Um, but there's similar instincts to rushing to judgment. I think, I think where you can start to make some headway on the unique circumstance of white evangelicals is that I think it's, uh, it bears some of the hallmarks of white evangelical subculture, which is sort of us versus them. A persecution complex and an isolation from the broader culture, which feeds into those things,
0: yeah, so isolation um, from the broader culture um i'll I'll link to i think there's uh there's some depolarized episodes that you were on where we talked about parallel institutions a bunch right, and so yep. rather than rehash that i'll I'll put a link there uh the the real short of it is that like christian music christian films uh christian news houses. Know, fill it out however you want, uh, became really a big thing in evangelicalism and contribute to a lack of trust in mainstream institutions, which would include journalistic outlets that have certain checks in place when they're reporting on, you know, some of these topics.
1: Yeah. So I think the isolation from the culture feeds into the persecution complex and feeds into the distrust of broader culture. And it sort of creates this default setting, it, create, it creates a situation where the the conspiracy theories are pretty out there. Um, it's not just that they are, that there is a situation where you have you know like the Steele dossier as part of a very legitimate investigation based on very real election interference by the right. Russian government. Right. It's it's QAnon, which is completely detached from all reality. It is crazy town. So let's talk and about so, QAnon
0: a little bit here because yeah. I uh, I do want to bring this in before. We get to. I actually have some some interesting stuff that I've come across that we can talk through about uh, stuff that may apply to our evangelical loved ones that send us these articles or uh, supercut videos. So QAnon, we don't have to spend a ton of time. I'm going to link to this really thorough Atlantic QAnon piece that has kind of become the the journalistic gold standard describing the conspiracy. But can you give us like two minutes on? As a journalist, like, how would you say this in a couple sentences? What QAnon is?
1: Well, I'll just sort of steal from the Atlantic piece, which is what prompted me to to interview Terry Mattingly because he wrote some criticism of it. Yeah. Well, his criticism
0: was basically, to be clear, his criticism was about how many evangelical thought leaders they interviewed for the piece, not the actual reporting of what QAnon is. Yeah. So what what we're going to hear here is not there's no big asterisk around the explanation of it. It's right. the way that they interacted with like evangelical elites, basically, which I think I mean, is kind of sad that you right. have
1: to say that. Right. Because your qualification there gets to how zero sum conversation is now because people hear me say there was a criticism of the QAnon piece and they're like, OK, well, we'll just throw the whole thing out. Right. That's not what I'm saying. There's nuance to it. Yep. Anyway, the QAnon piece in The Atlantic basically made the case that it's a cult that's basically beginning to take on hallmarks of using evangelical language, which I think is interesting because Trump has actually been good at that, you know, so or at least people who promote him have been good at that.
0: Uh, he Yeah, he does it some, and then certainly his uh, surrogates have done a good job. They're show, showing my own bias. Sure. So there's some guy named who goes by Q who claims to be – A military top-level clearance guy and posts on these message boards, these cryptic things. It's a lot of questions and very few answers. Basically, Trump is aware of some vast deep state conspiracy, but he's a step ahead of them. And he's leaving these breadcrumbs for true believers to really understand what's about to happen in the world. There's a storm coming. It's based on this one random thing he said. If you want to read more about it and don't know, please go read the piece. It's, it's very weird. It's very fascinating. Uh, we don't need to get into the details here. I'm more interested in how it coalesces with a particular kind of Christian evangelical subculture. This week's patron exclusive episode is a very fun episode. My good friend Loen Baumgarten pitched me on an episode where he makes the case for living not only in the world, but also being of the world to uh, bastardize that common phrase uh, in Christian circles. He is a uh, basically returned to his childhood Catholicism after we grew up evangelical together, but considers himself much more of a secularist than I am. And he made the argument at the beginning of our chat that I say this podcast is in, is for you know non-religious folks or former Christians, but I sure don't talk to them very often or make you know episodes specifically for those people, uh, which I think is half a fair point and half kind of a joke. Uh, but we did it. We had that conversation. It led to all kinds of interesting rabbit trails and clarifications about my own actual beliefs, the purpose of this show. Lowen was also able to clarify a lot of what he was trying to say and push back against um, as a listener to the show for a while now. We had some drinks. We had a lot of laughs. We found a lot of common ground. It was just a very good, fun conversation. Easily one of my favorite of these patron-exclusive episodes that I've ever done. Um, this is kind of like what these can be at their best. It's like something that doesn't quite make sense on the regular feed but is really interesting and fun nonetheless. And that's what I aim for. You know, don't always hit it. Uh but basically, yeah. So if you're a patron, if you join the Patreon campaign, you get two of these a month, these exclusive episodes, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is also for patrons only. Uh, if you want to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permissionpod.com and click Become a Patron. There's a link in the show notes, of course, as always. And uh yeah So, back to the episode. I've got this article from our mutual friend, friendly acquaintance, uh, Danielle Mayfield, the author. So, Danielle wrote this piece for Religion News Service that I think... I've got two quotes here that I think would be good sort of launching pads for us. She's trying to make sense of why certain conspiracy theories seem so prevalent in her in the the community she grew up in. And here's an incredible quote from her. Pretty damning, maybe a little unfair. We can talk about that. She says, quote, climate change, a hoax perpetrated by liberals hellbent on curbing economic process. Vaccines, not to be trusted. However, The end of the world and the return of Jesus would be ushered in by a one world government after Democrats elected the Antichrist as president, end quote. She's trying to point out some sort of hypocrisy here, right? Like there is something fantastical that we assume is going to happen. But then these other things that have this evidence, we're, we're, we're sure that those are false. What comes up for you when you hear that quote?
1: Well... I think there's a couple of things going on. I, I definitely go back to the issue of isolation from broader culture. This is something that actually I had a pretty strong organic internal reaction to as a young person. I always felt like there was something really off about that. I saw and felt the deep ways in which that was corrosive even then and you know couldn't have articulated it or connected dots then that I that I do now. The other thing that this is making me sort of reflect upon is is that the rot inside white evangelicalism is deep and goes back a ways. And there's an analogy and there's a, there's an argument here. The analogy is actually Hillary Clinton. The seeds of her demise were you know, they were planted in the 1990s and mm-hmm. it was um, 20 years of sort of Constant rhetoric about her that basically made her into an antichrist type figure almost among a lot of white evangelicals because the the messaging the rhetoric was so repetitive over so long and the analogy or the comparison or the parallel that I'm that I'm drawing here is that the thought structures of white evangelicals have been conspiratorial for a very long time and that gets to the argument which is. I think, most famously made by Mark Knoll, an evangelical himself, a white evangelical himself, a professor at Notre Dame University, formerly at Wheaton College, who wrote a book in 1995 called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which is really about the failure of white Protestant evangelicals to take the life of the mind seriously. When you throw that into the mix, combined with a, a moment in time— where television starting in the 50s really degrades public discourse orient[s] it more around emotion than around reason. And then you throw the internet on top of that for the last 20 years and all of the ways that that has degraded public discourse. And then you throw into it a group of people who are deeply sincere and devout, and in many cases, well-meaning, but who have for decades been part of a culture that does not take nuance and thought and deep thought and intellectualism seriously. And in fact, in many ways is anti-intellectual. I think that explains a lot. Just that last, that sort of overarching story. I think that explains a lot of why evangelicals are not just inclined like the rest of us to look for facts, to confirm our pre-existing biases, but are actually vulnerable to conspiracy theories that are so far out of reality that it's, um, it feels destabilizing to our society.
0: Yeah, I think it's worth just noting that like the crazier the conspiracy theory, the fewer people are gonna buy it and the fewer evangelicals are gonna buy it by proxy. Sure. Right. Yeah, um, I don't
1: know a ton of people who are like telling me about QAnon. Right. I know it's out there. Yeah. Uh the, the most the most I've seen
0: is being forwarded videos that I can tell were from QAnon people like, hey, this mm. is Joe from Q Nation. But the person who sent it does right. Not know that it's not like an inherent or something, right? Here's another quote from Danielle's piece that I think is interesting. She talks about Frank Peretti novels, which were massive, uh, from the 70s onward in evangelical community. And if, and if, if Sovereign Grace was kind of charismatic, then I imagine you know, uh, these novels from your childhood. Oh, yeah, I read
1: them when I was around, probably around the same age she read them, she was right, I think 10 or 12. So I think Left
0: Behind has sold more books, but the Peretti series is like not that far behind. So here's a quote from her. No, actually,
1: Left Behind sold way more, but I think her argument was that – I just listened to this episode of her podcast, one of the episodes on this, and her argument was that Peretti's books are far more influential than people realize.
0: Yeah, that could be true. So so here's her quote.
1: Novels such as
0: Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness – Pitted a small group of God fearing folk at war with demon possessed academics and newspaper editors, police chiefs and executives running multinational corporations End quote. So, I mean, there are these really influential books where the heroes are regular people just doing their own research on Facebook or whatever, of course, pre Facebook against the powers that be, which are actually possessed by demons And uh, have all the, you know, the sheen of real life authority, but actually are doing the devil's work.
1: I mean, if you read um, Francis Fitzgerald's history of evangelicals, you know, it it does a good job of explaining the history of of, uh, during the Great Awakenings of where sort of non-denominational Protestant evangelicalism comes from. And it was always populist. It was always, you know— most popular among people who were not highly educated, who did not have a lot of money, and who were anti-establishment. And a big part of the sort of theology is this very fierce belief in the individual's connection to God, the individual's responsibility to work out their salvation with trembling and fear. The Bereans are cited by Paul And then are used as an example of the kind of Bible scholar that white evangelicals should be, where they test everything against Scripture. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm going to bring it back to something I heard recently, which was a person on Facebook saying, you know, when I pointed out something or other, I think for myself. And my response to her was, that's great. We all need to think for ourselves. Yeah. But that's only half at least, of the equation of thinking well. Thinking well requires thinking for yourself, but also learning how to have others help you think. Right. It's not zero-sum, all-thinking-for-yourself. There's a combination of the two. You can't figure everything out by yourself, on your own. So I think the predisposition of a lot of white evangelicals is to think for themselves to the detriment of looking for people to help them think.
0: So I listened to a really great episode. I'm going to link to it. There's a podcast called Psychology in Seattle, and they did an episode on conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking. And Dr. Kirk Honda, the host of that show, had a whole bunch of like scientific articles he was pulling from. So this is secondhand. You could go to his episode. I, I would recommend it. And as I said, I'll link to it. But a number of the things that he mentioned, not all of them. But a number of them we could apply to evangelical subculture. And since you are a reporter who understands that subculture, I want to throw some of these at you and get your take on them. So you already mentioned low education. So lower education predicts higher conspiratorial thinking. And as you've said, basically evangelical movements are populist. They are they've never been elite movements. None of the Great Awakenings were about a bunch of people at universities <laughs> becoming Christians. Right. Right. That's just not really the soul of evangelicalism. It is a common people's movement, which of course has great strengths. It's very communicable to other people with lower education. Jesus hung out with a ton of people with low education. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's one thing. The more you identify with your in-group, the more susceptible you are to conspiracy theories. How do evangelicals rank against other groups in terms of identifying with their in-group? Or would we say
1: there's, there's shades there's sort of different levels of evangelicalism in that sense. I thought you were going to cite statistics from this podcast where he actually answered that question. No, he he? he wasn't
0: talking about evangelical. So I'm taking just okay. his stuff about conspiracy psychology and now applying it with you to evangelical subculture.
1: And you're asking me whether evangelicals identify with their in-group more than others?
0: Yeah. Or if you have any, if you have yep. an insight into sort of that self-identification stuff.
1: It's going to sound a little repetitive, but I think... The more that you're part of a group that isolates itself from others, the more you're going to identify with your in-group pretty strongly. And, you know, the church I grew up in, uh, Sovereign Grace, I went to Covenant Life Church growing up. Not only was there an isolation from the rest of the world, and the world is a very key term, right? Because the world represents big, yeah, um, everyone who is not a Christian, and it represents systems that are generally thought of as evil and even demonic going back to Frank Peretti. Uh, and that's sort of the mental framework used to explain things like abortion, which is, uh, thought of in evangelical subculture. First of all, as really the only political interaction you have, it's, it was certainly the only political interaction I had growing up. We were now, I think religious
0: liberty yes. is not there. Yeah. too. Yeah.
1: But growing up, we were a non-political and, thought of ourselves that way and didn't realize that all of our politics were mostly formed through a very black and white uh, view of abortion. And I'm not talking about black and white. uh, Well, I mean, you can be black and white on when life begins. And I think that that's a hard question to be black and white on, even if you can have a strongly her- held view. I think you also have to recognize that, um, it's not going to be black and white to a lot of other people. And that gets to the sure. complexity of the political question.
0: You mean black and white, like we elect Republicans cause they do Correct. good on abortion. Correct.
1: Right. That, that's and, it. And, and, yeah. and the fact that if you view abortion black and white, not just ethically and morally, but also politically, but especially on the ethical and moral question, if you view it as black and white, then you see those who are uh, pro-choice or I – don't, I don't know how many people call themselves pro-abortion. But you view that side, Democrats essentially, as evil. And so there's a very unsophisticated uh, view of politics and of uh, the human beings who make up political systems. So the original question was how, how strongly do you identify – With your in group. That's all just sort of getting to that notion of being isolated, being insular, and having this system of thought that views those outside the four walls of your church not just as different, but as actively evil and in need of rescue by you. And then the other thing I was just going to add is that the church I grew up in, and I think it's fairly common among charismatics was cultish in the respect that, you know, people basically thought of our church as the only really valid expression of yeah. Christianity. And so there was a lot of very subtle, implicit messaging to the effect of, if you go to another church that's not part of our network of churches, then you might be going to hell. And they never put it that way, but they would basically express concern if you weren't at a sovereign grace church.
0: So if if that's maybe like a harder version Of this kind of identification with in-group, a softer version might be just like, imagine a person who listens to Christian radio when they drive, they go see Christian films when they come out, Passion of the Christ, Fireproof, Facing the Giants, God's Not Dead. They send their kids to Christian universities and Christian, if they can afford it, Christian high school and junior high, whatever, right? Their friends are their friends from church. The more of those things you stack up, right. the greater your identification with your in group, whether or not you would call it your in group or even say I'm an evangelical, there's people that fit that description that don't think of themselves as an evangelical even necessarily. They'd be like, I just go to a Bible church. I don't know I don't know what that means. Right. But you stack those up and they
1: are gonna identify like they clearly are identifying with their own group. Just yeah. to point something out on that, I think Trump has also Really increased the degree to which white evangelicals identify those types, especially identify with their in group, because I know I know it to be true that once you vote for somebody for president, it becomes part of your identity. And the criticism of Trump has been so intense that, you know, people double down on the sense of uh, supporting him and being part of the MAGA movement because they it's not about Trump. It's about preserving their own sense of self-worth.
0: Yeah. The double down effect also relates to what we were talking about earlier, which is when people and institutions don't respond to honest questions with kind answers, but just vilify. Then the other person goes, all right, well, screw you. Right. I guess I'm MAGA for life. I don't right. want to be like you. You're you ivory tower asshole. Yep. So this other study, they considered, I think, dozens of possible things that could correlate with greater conspiratorial views. And they found a few. They found three. And one of them, I think, does not necessarily apply to evangelicals in general. It's a personality trait. But you could imagine this loved one who sends you stuff, and that is trait anxiety. So if the person is a more anxious person, generally speaking, then they are more likely to be conspiratorial. So that's just for listeners to consider for their person that they're thinking of. But the next two, I think you're going to have something to say about these, John. The first one is society is under threat. These are people who agree with that statement. And the second is society's values are changing. So people who heartily agree with those statements are more likely to be conspiratorial. Are there any two statements that more get to white evangelical Trump supporters than those two statements? Society's under threat. Society's values are changing. I've seen this stuff in, I think it was PRI polling of like, this is really correlated with evangelicals who support Trump and just general kind of more conservative culture. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I don't want to step on your answer. Society's under threat. Society's values are changing. What do you think about white evangelicalism when you hear that that's correlated with conspiratorial belief?
1: Well, I actually am curious why those things like I would love to kind of just pull on that thread a little bit and understand why those things do incline people to be more conspiratorial under threat changing. I don't know. I mean, do you have a, a thought on what maybe that maybe the paper you read explains the connection? I don't.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I, d- doesn't I didn't read it. To I'm, me. I'm reporting yeah. on the podcast, which reported okay. on the paper, which is not great. Generally speaking, not great uh, uh, way to go about this stuff. I it may be from this one paper. I, my notes are not clear enough. You're not have time to check. One idea <laughs> would be that. So if society is under threat, then probably you think that whatever group that you identify with or. The people that you like, they are the bulwark against that threat. Like, unless there's literally a calamity around the corner, you don't think society's under threat and the guy I voted for is the one doing it, right? Mostly people don't think that. They think, well, I voted for the people who are keeping the threat at bay. So if society's under threat, I mean, I think enemies, so this, maybe we bring in the psychology of enemies, right? Think about propaganda in uh, Nazi Germany. If you turn Jews into rats, if you turn them into animals, it's a lot easier to hate them than if you consider them as people. So the the more we can simplify enemies and threats, uh, the 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 more cognitive load we de- we decrease for ourselves in having to figure out. Oh shoot, am I part of the problem? Am I part of the solution? How complicated is it? If I can just go, oh, Jews are rats, so rats get exterminated. That is awful. It's also very simple and requires very little cognitive legwork.
1: I mean, the the notion of fear is um a big reason why Trump got elected in the first place or at least had the um support of so many white evangelicals. And that that is a a theme that has been I think used for political advantage by Republicans for a while. I think George W. Bush used it after 9/11, frankly. A
0: lot of fear, they they hate our freedom, they're going to attack again. Stuff like that.
1: Yeah. And Karl Rove uh, definitely used gay marriage as a wedge issue in 2004. That's been documented. But
0: then, of course, like left Twitter has I don't know that anything has been more overused in my lifetime than Trump is a fascist, which is totally a fear. It's meant to elicit fear that Trump literally wants to, like, militarize the state against us in some way, which he has shown now basically zero predilection for doing of all the things he is. He's not a fascist. He's incompetent, but that is like you throw the word fascism out there that freaks people out. So that's, I'm just saying people do
1: that on both sides. They use fear as a tactic to motivate people. Yeah, they do. I I would, I would also just say that he did militarize the state to some degree during the um, crackdown on protesters and threatened to do so to even greater degrees. But you know, I think that the issue of being, fear and the feeling of being under of society being under threat gets to first of all. I don't know. I don't have much comment on whether those things predispose people to to be conspiratorial, because it would just be to sort of go over tr- ground we've already uh, trod a couple of times. But I think the relevant point to me here is that there is a disconnect between what the Christian faith teaches about fear and about what we're supposed to be the m- most concerned about. There's a disconnect between that and a politics that's, that makes decisions based on a feeling that our country or our, our material body or, or material you know, wealth is under threat. Now, it's easy to say that if you're somebody like me who is doing okay. I'm not in the Rust Belt. I haven't lost my job. Yeah, you're a coastal elite. You're a journalist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm always cautious when talking about this sort of test of conviction or faith or principle, because it's like somebody said on Twitter, Robbie George, I think he asks his students if they would have been against slavery, you know, in the early 1800s or the mid 1800s if they lived in the South. And they all said, yes, they would have been that's uh that's unlikely you know <clears throat> when yep. we're in when yeah. we're in positions where our interests align with a certain position we often take that position it's very hard and very rare to take public stands that cost us real things but that said i just think that the evangelical church the white evangelical church believed a lot of things about where i think they made a mistake was in actually in believing these things because i don't think that it was I don't think it was uh, a certainty that religious liberty was headed the wrong direction before Trump. I think there was, I think even now, you know, David French, to mention him again, has written about how there's still a lot of uh, religious liberty protections. The Supreme Court is going to rule, I think, probably favorably on the ministerial exception fairly soon. And I mean, I think in a lot of ways, electing Trump was the worst thing that the right could have done for religious liberty because it guaranteed a a backlash. Yep. And so now, you know, the backlash to Trump, if he loses, will be fierce and that'll create its own backlash. And that's the problem really at the bottom of all this is that a breakdown of institutions, a breakdown of civil discourse and deliberative debate leads to a series of escalations and backlashes and increasing instability. That's what's at stake.
0: Yeah. Well, so that that's a perfect bridge to my kind of last thing to talk about with you here. We so uh, one last quote from Danielle. Uh, She says, indeed, conspiracy theories power often comes from the fact that they contain a grain of truth. But extracting that truth is part of our job as rational beings to not engage in conspiratorial thinking does not mean that one wholeheartedly agrees with the government. Instead, It means doing the hard work of understanding our own biases, our desire for simplicity, and the tendency to want to ignore hard truths about our communities, end quote, to which we could add from our previous conversation, if you are a person who understands the conspiracy theory, to not be a dick about it to people who are asking you questions. So there's personal work we have to do on the other side of the work that she's talking about, where we need to understand that our value does not come from being the right smart ones who don't believe the conspiracy theory, but like we, if we have anything to offer, we shepherd others lovingly, right? So there's, there's multiple pitfalls here, which is, I think why you, you appear kind of pessimistic and I am too, at least for the next 10, 15 years, quite pessimistic because if we get out of one pitfall, we got to go to the other one and then we'll have to get out of that one and learn from that one. But so if you could tie this all together, like for a person who liked this conversation, okay, so they're on board with us more or less in what we've said, what's the work for us to do to like be a part of the solution? Obviously, it's not just not believing in conspiracy theories. If you liked this conversation, you probably don't believe in that many conspiracy theories anyway. So
1: what's the the work now for us? I think building um, and maintaining and preserving capacity for free speech is important. I've come a long way on race the last 5 to 10 years and uh have no problem with the term anti-racist. Uh, I do believe it systemic racism is a serious serious problem and I and I understand the urgency of people who want to change things. But I don't think you can make meaningful progress on systemic racism if there's not room for free free speech and free thought. Otherwise, everything becomes what I just described, a series of power moves where the people with the most power try to strong arm their way to their desired result, which creates uh, a backlash. And that's just an, an, a never ending series of escalations and, and, and uh, responses that often can lead to violence. Um, And so I think preserving, you know, fighting for that as a first principle, I think is really important. Freedom of conscience is included in that. And I think also, thinking about what are the institutions and the groups that I can be a part of or start on my own or contribute to that are going to make a difference over the long term. And I think just taking a long view is important. And uh, yeah, I may be pessimistic about the next 10 to 15 years. I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it in those terms. But the reason for pessimism is that not only do you have these series of sort of increasing, increasingly destabilizing back and forths, We don't have a lot of the uh, muscle memory or categories in our mind to think about how to act uh, differently, how to pull ourselves out of the spiral. We don't have a conception in the broader culture for slower systemic change. And so I think just sort of making that a point of emphasis uh, in your communication. The thing I wanted to say about communication actually is that Yeah, we do need to be gracious to people. But as always, there's a difference between interpersonal communication and public communication. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's never an excuse to be a jerk. um, But there is less need, I think, or room for sort of, I think, uh, elevating people's points of view in public discourse or – you know, even taking time to answer someone in some, in some respects or taking time to address ev- all of a person's concerns in the public forum. I think, right. you know, you know, if it, if it's your friend, then you go to, you know, as, as far a length as possible to, to help them and to talk to them. But in the public forum, people have to, you know, make decisions about what's the best use of their time. Exactly. And, and in some cases have to, you know, need to, uh, vigorously, and and in some cases, categorically, just sort of dismiss or or refute people. Um, yeah. So that you know, there's it's important to think to distinguish between those two realms of communication as well. But I, I just think generally, thinking long term, thinking institutionally, and uh, thinking locally actually is pretty important too.
0: John, thank you so much, man, for your time. Appreciate it.
1: Dan, thank you so much too, and uh, thank you for all you've been doing the last few years on your podcast. It's great. I can't help but. Yeah, I hear (laughs) you. I don't really
0: need your thanks. I'm going to do it either way. No, I'm Anyway, that's right. Thank you so much to John Ward for chatting with me this week. And thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing our conversation. He is available, folks, for other editing work. And his email is in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, there is a lot in the show notes this week. If you want to follow up on some of what we talked about today, I've got a link to his podcast, the long game, as well as John's uh, Yahoo profile, his journalist profile and all his articles. We've also got the Daniel Mayfield article about evangelicals and conspiracy theories, that Atlantic QAnon uh, mega piece. It's about a half hour read. We've got a link to the autism piece that John mentioned uh, on slate. Also the, uh, the depolarize, episode where we talked, where John and I talked about the parallel institutions in evangelical subculture at more length than we talked about today, quite a bit more length. Track down that episode, as well as that Psychology in Seattle Conspiracy Theories episode, which I uh, mentioned and pulled some of my data from that I would highly recommend listening to you if that is the kind of thing you're interest, interested in. And I would just recommend that show in general for people who are interested in psychology and therapy. Okay, that's a lot. Um, this was really fun though. Great conversation and I hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll see you next week. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more
1: about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.